Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, which is a bit of a throwback involving two stalwart Hong Kongers who are no longer with us. Later in the programme, I talk to the late Hong Kong historian Dan Waters about the life of the Hong Kong governor, Sir Robert Brown Black, who was governor of Hong Kong from 1958 to 1964, and the water shortages in Hong Kong and other events of that era. But my first interview is with the late Elsie Tu, who, in 2013, marked her 100th birthday, and I went to see her at a school in Kuntong, that had originated as a tent that she and her later husband, Andrew Too, erected to teach largely refugee children back in the 1950s. Born in Northern England in a working-class family in 1913, the then Elsie Elliott would come to China with her church, the Plymouth Brethren, at a time when Mao Zedong and the communists had just taken power. In this programme, we talk about how she increasingly became disillusioned with her church and its prejudices, her teaching in Hong Kong, and how she started to notice the corruption in Hong Kong ahead of the founding of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC, in 1974. Well, this is what we call our new building. It has two parts. This part, where you came up, is the original building, which was built in 1972. And on the other side, where you came across a little bridge there from the, from the lift, is what we call the extension. Now, that was built in 1978. But before that, we had a tent... In Wong Daixin. Yes, you and your Chinese husband, Andrew, too, you both set up. Uh, you just started a school, didn't you? Well, we started the school as a tent in 1954. And after 1954, we had to move the tent. We built a small stone building, and then we put a second story on. And then the government said they were taking the land back. So then we had to go renting buildings. And that was a headache. When you rent a building, they give you six months, and then they put up a notice, six months' notice, and you have to leave unless you are willing to raise the rent. So in the case of uh, pay the money or get out. So that's what we were doing. We got so many students, we had to rent several buildings in Kowloon City area and in Lakfu and uh, another one in Prince Edward Road. Now, with the education, this this idea of yours to set up a tent in the first place, so the tent was here in Kuntong? Wong Daixin area. Actually, we called it Kaitak New Village, and opposite the airport. Who were your early students? Who were our students? Well, that's <laughs> a funny thing. We had to go around looking for students. There were a lot of squatters in the area who had no school to go to. So Mr. Joe and I, who came from the same church, went around with handwritten notices asking children to come to our school. But we had no building. Anyhow, they came, and we got 30 students in the tent. And Mr. Joe taught all the Chinese subjects, and I taught all the English subjects, including mathematics, history, and geography. Can I take you right back to 1913 and Newcastle upon Tyne? So tell me, what kind of family were you born into? A working class. Uh, my father was, uh, at that time, a grocer. He was called into the army because of the First World War. And uh, at that time, 
when he went into the army, he was recruited. I was only one year old, so I couldn't remember him. When he came out of the army in 1918, I was then five years old and I was starting school. And that's when I got to know my father. Uh, before that, I lived with my mother, my sister, who was a little older than I, and my mother, my mother and my auntie. We lived together. Now, you've said in previous interviews that your father was, was quite an influence or the my way that he looked. Although he had very little education, he only studied up to primary six because his parents died by accidents. And he, he had to go working when he was 12 years old. But he, um, after going in the army, he learned a lot. And uh, he used to read the dictionary and teach himself. He was actually quite, quite well educated in spite of the fact that he had very little school. Where did the church missionary element come from? Was that from your parents? No, they were not, not missionary types, no. No, um, I met a young man at university and uh, I joined his church, thinking it was a good church because they didn't have all the swinging the, the incense and dressing up in silks and so on. And I thought that was good. But when I got into it, I thought it was, I found it very narrow-minded. I wasn't happy in it at all. What did you study at university? Mainly history, but I did study Latin and uh, ethics. Did you always look at teaching as a career, or did you have no. other things as a young woman? I didn't want to be a teacher because I was too shy, and I thought I could never stand up in front of a, a lot of tall boys, <laughs> because I'm quite small, you know, con comparatively. I'm the smallest of the family. And uh, I dreaded the idea of teaching boys who were so much taller than myself. I wanted to go into the civil service and earn some money for my parents, you see. But the headmistress said, no, you're doing well in school. You must go to university. She got my parents to go to school and she persuaded them to support her and they did. And uh, I went right through school with no fees to pay. Oh, for, for a scholarship? Oh, scholarships, yes. Yeah. That must have been extraordinary for your parents in that era. Well, it was because my parents had only been in primary school. My mother used to go to and talk to her neighbours and show my reports, you know, and I was... I felt so shy. <laughs> and my father wanted me to become a member of parliament in England, but I seemed to be thinking in terms of going to other countries, Africa or China or somewhere. Uh, so did you go anywhere before Hong Kong? China. I went to China for three years. So you went very much at the time when Mao Zedong, oh, when we, it became we communist? When Mao Zedong's army entered the city. So where were you? At Yangtze, Nanchang. And we saw them coming in. And the people were all shouting and welcoming them. It was very good at first, you know. What were you doing there? Studying a little Chinese. We also had a, a hospital. The church had a hospital. But they didn't let me go to work there because 
I was not a nurse. So really I didn't have much to do there except uh, get to know the people. But I, I wasn't happy in, in China, in the church, because the, the church used to, I, well, they used to say to me, be kind to the Chinese, but keep them in their place. And I said, where is their place? And they said, well, you must sit in the front, and always sit in the front. But I said, the Bible says, don't sit in the front. Oh, no, that's, you know, that doesn't apply to us. <laughs> so what church was it, Anglican or? No, it was Plymouth Brethren, narrow, very narrow-minded. So you then, you got disenchanted with the Plymouth Brethren? Absolutely horrified. And then what led to your decision to come down to Hong Kong? Was that also the political situation in China? It it was, yes. While we were there, the war between North and South Korea began and America was fighting on the side of supposed to represent United Nations as English people we were considered enemy aliens so they advised us to leave they didn't force us they were very cool they advised us to leave so after a while we did leave came to hong kong what are your first memories of arriving in hong kong well uh, i had been in hong kong before on the way here we stopped here for a week my first memories I met a man who was a member of the church here in Hong Kong and he is also a government doctor and when he talked to me he said you know Hong Kong is very corrupt he said if you want to fight it buy yourself a camera and take pictures and I got that in my mind watch out what's happening already in those years he told me yes but I didn't have a camera, I couldn't afford one. Anyhow, I um, I watched very carefully and I saw the corruption myself, and that made me speak up. I couldn't speak for myself, but I could speak for other people. So that was the, the corruption. I mean, of course, you're renowned for also helping to found the ICAC. Well, I think I had a good, a good hand in that. When... Mary McLeod came once. I introduced him to the LegCo members. I was on the LegCo at that time. And I said, he, Mary McLeod is the one who introduced the ICAC. And he said, you push my elbow. Uh, well, I suppose that was true. I used to go and speak to him. He would ask me to go and tell him some corruption. So, in fact, yes, you, you led, you actually, your actions partially led to the founding of the ICAC. I, I, yes, I, th- I think Mr. Mermakios considered that. And when he left, his wife said to me, keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> so this was corruption within the police, but also elsewhere? Everywhere. I think Mermakios was t- totally disappointed because he couldn't do what he wanted. He was forced into giving an amnesty. So you were a member of the Legislative Council. You were also active in the Urban Council. Yes. Urban Council from 1963 to 1995. 
Tell me about your role during the Star Ferry riots. Oh, the Star Ferry riots. Was it to do with the prices of the Star Ferry going up? or d- Yes. The government noticed that I was taking the side of the people, so they had a good plan. They appointed me to be a member of the Transport Advisory Committee, hoping that I would support the government, you see. But to their great disappointment, I didn't support the government. I spoke against them. I said there is no need to raise the fees on the saw ferry because I know that the bus companies are just waiting to raise their fees as well. And everybody will be having problems with rising fares. So I I voted against the motion. And the government's quite upset about that. But uh, but what did you also feel about, you know, obviously it wasn't, there, there was the dissatisfaction on a number of fronts about the ticket prices, but other discontent here. But also it was a time of the, the Red Guard in China and the Cultural Revolution, and that also had an impact. The next year, mm, I in didn't part in that. I kept right out of that. Until at the very end, uh, when they, when they were, people were getting killed, I spoke up then and said that I'm totally disappointed that people are killing each other, and I I cannot support this this uh, fighting. The late LC2 there. Sir Robert Black was Governor of Hong Kong from 1958 to 1964. Some of the challenges that Black's administration faced were the tens of thousands of refugees coming in from China and droughts that led to water shortages here. In this interview, the late Hong Kong historian Dan Waters tells me about Sir Robert's tenure and I also learned that Hong Kong didn't introduce a law to allow one day off a week until 1971. I came to Hong Kong, you probably know, by passenger boat. That was the way we travelled in those days, uh, at the end of 1954. And when I arrived, they said to me straight away, have you signed the book? And I said, what book? And they said, at Government House. If you don't sign the book, you won't get an invitation to the Queen's birthday party on the 21st of, of April. So I duly signed the book. And I met people there, and I also learned that the Chinese were sending in a petition. And the petition was that they wanted to give the governor, who was at the time Sir Alexander Grantham, an extension. And they sent this petition to Whitehall, to London, but it wasn't approved. And they said, no, he will have been here 10 years. That was a record then, before Sir Murray Maclehose uh, took over when he ellipsed the record. And then, instead of Sir Alexander Grantham getting the extension, we got Sir Robert Brown Black. Sir Robert Brown Black, a favourite with the ladies. <laughs> In what way? Well, well <laughs> he was good-looking. He was tall. I can picture him now with his uh, cocked hat and with the ostrich feathers, which uh, modernists don't like today, but it was accepted. No one complained. A governor wore those sorts of hats years ago, and it was accepted. He had been governor of Singapore in the turbulent run-up to independence, and he'd also previously been colonial secretary 
later changed to chief secretary. He'd been colonial secretary to Sir Alexander Grantham, and he came to Hong Kong. So Sir Robert Brown Black already had quite a diplomatic background before uh, becoming governor here. Yes, but he wasn't in the diplomatic corps. He was colonial service. And all those governors in those earlier days, right up to uh, David Trench, they all came up in the colonial service. And it wasn't then when MacLehose, uh, Sir Murray MacLehose, took over as governor that you had people from the diplomatic corps and Sir David Wilson, diplomatic corps. And then, of course, later you had uh, Chris Patton. He was a politician. He was a politician, <laughs> that's right. But when uh, Sir Robert Brown Black took over, uh, Hong Kong was riding high, I would say. It was riding pretty high. So just remind me of his dates. He came in in what year? Sir Robert Brown Black was 1958 to 1964. So why do you feel that particularly that Hong Kong was riding high at that time? England, for example, Westminster said, you needn't send uh, your finance situation here. Uh, you can do it all yourself as far as the budget is concerned. It's over to you. You can do it yourself. Uh, no problem. But nevertheless, still, as far as foreign affairs were concerned, that was con still controlled by London. And also... Uh, a bit of a bitter pill, defence costs, for example, they were shared, partly between uh, London and partly between uh, Hong Kong. So, in terms of Hong Kong defence co costs, if we can just stop there a moment, what what would Hong Kong have been having to spend out on? Well, the so army here, for example, uh, we had uh, a garrison here for many years. They used to march on the Queen's birthday. It was quite a spectacular event, and of course. Uh, their keep here uh, had to be financed. So when Sir Robert Brown Black came in following Alexander Grantham, Alexander Grantham had been quite a popular governor. Oh yes, he was quite popular. Uh, he was in fact a benevolent dictator. Uh, he got things done. I mean when there was the fire for example in the squatter area on the Christmas Eve uh, of 1953. Yes, at Shetkit May. He, he straight away called on Boxing Day a meeting, on Boxing Day. And he started off, there was no having to get approval. He had decided with Exco, the governor in council, and they started off uh, straight away setting up the resettlement department and the uh, seven-storey blocks without any lifts uh, and communal washing. Uh, straight away he started this off on Boxing Day of 1953. And uh, so when Sir Robert Brown Black came in 1958, what were some of the problems that he faced in Hong Kong? In those days, he came in 1958, that's right. And then uh, we, we were no more an entrepot, in other words, and we had uh, the elements of industry had set, been set up pretty quickly. There were sweatshops, it is true. You had, we were making textiles, we were making wigs, plastic flowers, transistor radios, and uh, to a large extent in those days, he, he lived in government house, of course, and they used to say the governor's, uh, uh, governor's barometer was looking out at the harbour, and he counted the number of ships in the harbour. Mm -hmm. And if there were a lot of ships in the harbour, well then, 
uh, the, the, the uh, economy was doing uh, pretty well, pretty well. And uh, anyway, uh, they wanted him to move government house. They wanted, they'd been talking about for this for some time, talked about moving government house up to Magazine Gap or Wanshai Gap. And, Why did they want to move government house? Uh, well, for the same reason that they moved the cricket pitch. The cricket pitch used to be in uh, Chater Garden, where Chater Garden is now, and they moved that out in 1976. What, to make the land available? Uh, to make land available, and they wanted it for, really, for the people. And they felt that uh, the people uh, around the cricket pitch uh, make a garden of it. So there you had, and they wanted to do the same with the... Uh, government house, although some people said it should be a hotel. But Sir Robert Black, he wasn't having any of it, and he said, no, I shall be too remote. Uh, we stay here, government house remains here. And although this decision had been hanging about a long time, he was pretty determined that he wanted to stay in uh, uh, fairly well in the middle of Hong Kong. That's what he wanted to do. But of course, in those days, although industry had started and it was pretty active, workers were not catered for very well. There's no doubt about that. There was no law that a person should have one day off a week until 1971. There were no annual holidays or anything like that. This came much later. In October, of, it was legislated in October of uh, 1971. So life in 1958 for your average worker was pretty tough. Oh, it was pretty tough, there's no doubt about that. Until, we, until after the um, Star Ferry riots, that, uh, that was a, sort of a move in that direction, Elsie Elliott and people like that. So in the late 1960s? That's right, late 1960s. And then in 1971, this legislation came in. That people and could have one day off a week? That's right. They had one day off a week, and they had one week's holiday a year, which made things much better. But also, of course, during Sir Robert Brown's Black, another thing that was very bad was, of course, the water shortage. There was the drought in 1963, and that was the worst drought, the driest period in Hong Kong's history. We used to have water on tap, four hours on tap, once every four days. And, of course, they expected that he was the governor and uh, he would sort of uh, uh, have a bit of better supply. But he said, no, I'm going to do the same as everyone else. As far as I'm concerned, Government House will get its water once every four days and that once will be for four hours. The same as everyone else. And, of course, everyone was quite impressed by this. There was no favourable treatment as far as uh, he was concerned. And did you know Sir Robert Brown Black? Oh, yes. I used to go to the garden party in those days when Sir Robert Brown Black and used to shake hands with him and I used to have a, a brief word with Sir Robert Hortong and people like that. And, of course, things were very colonial in those days. There's no doubt about that. But I have vivid memories. I can still remember very clearly. I can remember Sir Robert Black, Sir Robert Brown Black, very suave, very smooth, very sophisticated, hubris, uh, a nice sort of chap, and a good, I would say, a good ambassador for Britain.
coming back to the uh, water shortage, we were very short in those days. We were rationed. And, uh, but then, of course, there was a big move for increasing water supply. And you had Plover Cove came along later. High Island came along later. So what would you have said, you know, with Sir Robert Brown Black coming in 1958, he's obviously following on from the start of public housing with Sir Alexander Grantham following the Shepkip May fire in 1953, which of course devastated uh, these, these squatter areas, but fortunately no one died miraculously but, uh, in that particular fire, but there were plenty of other fires where people did. Um, so what would you have said with Sir Robert Brown Black during his years? Obviously he showed he, he was a man of the people with um, the fact that he was also prepared to undergo these water shortages himself. But uh, what, other, did, what other things did he introduce during, what other policies did he introduce? Well, funnily enough, in those days, China didn't matter much. We used to go out there and we used to look over the, uh, go out to the border and look over into China. But although we, we got a water supply from China, I mean, one thing that he did for the water supply was uh, he had, he negotiated with China. And I remember driving around the New Territories, going out there, and seeing some jolly great pipes about six feet diameter lying in the field. And I stopped the car and looked at what I know. And then, of course, they must have been, and they were, to, for the water supply from China, which, of course, he ne negotiated. And this was at the start of the uh, 1960s. So little heat. Heed was really given to China in those days. Although, of course, to give them their due, they uh, did supply uh, they did supply food. Pigs came in, vegetables came in as usual, and a beer that I used to drink in those days was called Snowflake. And I haven't seen that beer for years, <laughs> which I would like to see Snowflake beer. Snowflake beer was that was that a bitter or a lager? That was a lager. But anyway, I can remember going along to my, uh, this was in uh, Sir Robert Brown Black's time, going along to my Cantonese teacher, and he was laughing and saying that the China government had said that they were going to catch up and uh, improve on England's performance within five years. And he said to me, how can they do it? Ridiculous. They can't do it. And, of course, that was during Sir Robert Brown Black's time, starting in 1958, with the Great Leap Forward. And with the Great Leap Forward, uh, people came off the land and they started to produce pig iron in their backyards, which was uh, rubbish stuff and couldn't be used in most cases. And, uh, of course, there was the failed harvest. This went on until the early 60s. And we don't know, but at that particular time, there must have been something like 30 million or 35 million people died in China of starvation. Uh, it was a terrible time. How aware, though, over in Hong Kong at that time, how aware were you of these developments in China? Well, I used to live in Argyle Street, and just down from Argyle Street, on the same side as the Kowloon Hospital, there was uh, large offices which were manned by Americans. And these Americans were uh, China watchers, in other words. I know a man now who's retired in Hong Kong. He was one of the American China watchers. And uh, I used to get information from them. And they used to uh, 
catch people who'd come out of China, who were uh, escapers, who'd swum across Deep Bay, that sort of thing. And I used to get information from there. Dan Waters and Elsie too there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.